you open your Bibles up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Well, this morning we are beginning a study through the book of Colossians. It is our plan to walk from the beginning of the, to the end of this little but oh-so-precious letter that we have. We've, we spent some time, we spent about nine, ten weeks, nine weeks, I believe, talking about the doctrine of the church, especially with all that we've been through and seeing that Christ is, yes, the head of the church. We saw the purpose of the church. We saw the leadership that God puts in place in the church and the responsibilities of that leadership and then the responsibilities of all of us to live a life of worship and how that is fleshed out through the preaching of the word to the applying of the word to fellowship to communion and on and on. And so we thought about what, as we were thinking, what do we do next? What would be good for us as a church body? What should we fill our minds with and focus intensely on? And we thought, well, we've talked about the body of Christ. Let's focus on Christ. So we are going to go through Colossians because Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ and how knowing Christ changes our lives. We want to get a a higher view of Christ, a clearer view of our head, Jesus, and Colossians is a great place to go for that. In fact, John Calvin wrote regarding the book of Colossians, quote, this epistle, to express it in one word, distinguishes the true Christ from a fictitious one. It distinguishes the true Christ from a fictitious one. We want to know the true Christ. We live in a world that likes to make up a fictitious Christ, a fake Christ. A storybook Christ that is twisted, that only appeals to the desires of fallen man's heart. We don't want that. We want what the Word of God says about our Lord. And so we're going to dive into Colossians. This morning we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 8. So let's read that together. Let's begin in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So we begin with Paul's greetings here. And this section, you could say, gives us five reasons for thanksgiving. Five reasons for thanksgiving. 
quickly. Those reasons are God's word, God himself, God's work in you, God's work in the world, and God's messengers. And we'll walk through each of these. But this first section points us to see that the gospel leads us to God-centered thanksgiving. The gospel leads us to God-centered thanksgiving. That's where it naturally should go. That's what it naturally should produce within us, thanksgiving. So let's begin with our first reason, to be thankful. God's word. God's word. This is verses 1 through 2, where Paul said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. We are really blessed, truly blessed, to have this letter that is from God to his people, This letter that teaches us more about the good news of the gospel and then how it impacts our lives. We see that it is written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. You're probably familiar somewhat with him. Paul was missionary to the Gentiles, is what we see, predominantly his ministry in the book of Acts. He was saved by the Lord converted on the road to Damascus, and he identifies himself here as an, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We know that he wrote majority of the New Testament letters. And here he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the term apostle basically means a messenger. However, when it's used in the New Testament, predominantly it is referring to or identifying a specific group of men who were chosen by Christ to be his representative leadership, his representative leaders and messengers in the early church. And the intention of it was that they lay the foundation of the church. We see that in the book of Ephesians. They were to deliver God's word to the church, and they were to confirm the word and work of God in the early church. And they did so through signs and wonders and miracles. And those were basically to show that this new group called Christians, bringing this this message about Jesus, is legitimate. It is a legitimate work of God. The signs pointed to the legitimacy of the message and the messenger. And so as an apostle, they possessed a divinely called position with a delegated authority from the Lord himself, during the time of the early church. There are no apostles to this day. That was for the early church. But that foundation has been laid already. And Paul's authoritative teaching as an apostle in this letter was meant to protect the Colossians from surrounding heresies and yet to also spur them on in their walks with Christ. He was seeking to be faithful to the message the Lord had given him, And you see, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He belongs to Christ Jesus. His apostleship comes from Christ Jesus. He is intent on being a servant of Jesus. Now, the major theme of Colossians is the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ. And here from the beginning, even in Paul's address about himself, he points to the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ in Paul's life. Paul was a messenger of Christ. Whatever his Lord said he was to do, that's what he did. And he was an apostle of Christ by the will of God. By the will of God. 
This was the source of his apostleship. It was not by Paul's choosing. He didn't go online and fill out a quick five-minute survey and get his certificate of apostleship. Supposedly you can do that. Please do not do that. This was by God's will. By God's will. In fact, he would expand on that a little bit more in Galatians 1.1 where he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul's role in the church was set by the Lord, by his master. You want to read of Paul's conversion, you can see it in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus where the Lord appeared to him in a bright light. That was completely by the sovereign will of God to appear to Paul. Paul did not deserve that. Paul did not earn that. It was by God's choosing. It was by God's choosing because Paul was, in a sense, to be a gift to the church. And you say, that's weird. Where do you get that from? Well, Ephesians 4.11 tells us that apostles are some of the gifts that Christ gives to the church. And so Jesus had chosen to send Paul to be a gift, a messenger, a servant of the church, one who suffered much for the sake of Christ and the church, but he was given a mission by Christ, and that is a gift to the church. Yet gifts to the church, it wasn't just limited to the apostles. Every single believer in here is a gift to the church. We all have been given gifts by God, been commissioned by God with a certain mission, a certain task. We know the mission is to make disciples, but we are gifted with different abilities, strong suits that are all meant to build up the body of Christ. You are a gift to the body of Christ from Christ. May we be faithful to that gifting. So this letter comes from Paul, and yet he also mentions Timothy, our brother. You might remember Timothy. His, this was Paul's son in the faith, a co-laborer with Paul. We would, from church history, see that he spent his later years in Ephesus, ministering there, pastoring there. And Paul acknowledges him here, showing honor to him by including him in the greeting. So Timothy is with Paul, and Paul is writing. What we would find is he's writing from prison. He's in prison in Rome at the time that he's writing this letter, and we believe it's sometime in the early 60 to 62 AD that he writes this. And who does he write it to? Well, look at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He's writing to the church at Colossae, the Colossians. Now, Colossae is a, a city in the area we would call modern-day Turkey. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was known for its black wool and various dyes that it produced. And at one point, it was a thriving city. There was a major trade route junction in this city. However, over the years, that junction moved to Laodicea. You might recognize that name. But at the time that Paul is writing, the population of Colossae is mainly Gentile, but there was a large Jewish population or a large Jewish group there. And we see hints of that when Paul corrects or critiques the, the false teachings within the book of Colossians. There's Jewish flavors to it. Now, the church at Colossae did not begin actually from Paul himself. He didn't plant that church. 
I believe actually was planted by Epaphras during Paul's three-year ministry at Ephesus. We believe Epaphras traveled to Colossae, heard the gospel, repented and believed, and then went back to his city and began laboring there, spreading the gospel there, and the church grew from that. So Paul had actually never even met the church of Colossae at this point. And yet he's writing to them because he cares for them. We find out because Epaphras had brought him a message about them, and he shows a, a love, a care, a concern for the brethren there. Actually, look what he calls them. He calls them saints and faithful brothers. Saints, set-apart ones, ones that who had been pulled out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, as he would say in verse 13 of chapter 1. Those who are walking faithfully, who are walking worthy according to the gospel that sets them apart. These, these beloved are holy unto the Lord and yet part of the family of God. So though he had never met him, listen to how he talks about them, how he greets them, addresses them. Paul had a compassion for the church. So as we, we think about this letter, we might wonder, okay, he's right. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossae, the, the saints and faithful brethren. Maybe what's the big picture of the, what's the whole purpose in his writing? Why is he writing this? We could say the purpose of this letter is to give an exalted view of Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the bullseye of this letter. And yet it doesn't just stop there. It flows over into discussing our union with Christ Jesus our Lord and how that union with Christ Jesus impacts the way we live. Yes, Paul addresses huge doctrine about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were made. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the preeminent one. These amazing truths about Christ and then yet how that changes the way we live. Colossians chapter 3, put to death these old sinful ways, put on these Christ-like ways, showing that the more we know Christ, the more we should look like Christ. But within all that, he refutes or addresses what we call the Colossian heresy. Some type of false teaching that was going around. Now there is much, much, much ink that has been spilt over what in the world this Colossian heresy was. Was it uh, a Jewish uh, teaching? Was it a pagan Gentile teaching? Was it this or that? Was it just philosophy? And all those sides have some good points to them, but when we look at the whole of the letter, it appears it was a, a yes. It was a mixing of all of that. We call that syncretism. Syncretism, a, a mixture, a merging of, of different elements from different religions and philosophies, from Judaism to Gentile paganism and philosophies to Christianity, people were mixing everything up. It appears that some of that at the, at the bullseye was a lesser view, a low view of Jesus. Either he was just a, a lesser God or a created being. We still run into groups that believe that to this day. Jehovah Witnesses believe that. 
Yet also, it seems, there was an embracing of philosophy and higher knowledge. You need this special knowledge that, you know, I happen to have, by the way. So you should follow me. Later, that would bloom into Gnosticism. That would plague the church for a long time. Maybe even to this day, you could say. Yet, additionally, there was pressure on Christians. It would appear that the gospel is insufficient. It's insufficient, you know, it lacked the power or the supernatural experiential element that gives you the religious high that you want. But Paul goes after all of that, all of it. Yet it didn't fully go away. We still see syncretism to this day, a mixing to this day. Our culture itself is a melting pot of various religious and philosophical ingredients. Some stink worse than others. People, I mean, people take what they want, what they like about Jesus, and then they throw the rest away to make something that really makes them feel good about themselves. To show you, know, at least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. At times, I've, I've run into this. Actually, often I've run into this in evangelism, and you might have too. Remember times specifically going to share with someone in, in Indiana. There was a large Roman Catholic population, and so it wasn't uncommon that you run into someone who held to Roman Catholicism. And having done some research on Roman Catholicism, what they believe, you know, I'd get in a conversation and, oh, you're Roman Catholic. Well, I know everything about what you believe. Let me tell you the answers. And so I would start to interact with him. Oh, you know, Roman Catholicism. Your church teaches this, you know, and. You know, why does it teach that? And I'd get this weird look. Like, I don't believe that. I'm like, well, wait, you just said you're a Roman Catholic. What do you mean you don't believe that? And then you come to find out, man, you're a really bad Roman Catholic. <laughs> but I had assumed. And we have to be careful with that, beloved, that we don't just assume when we talk to people that we know exactly what they believe, especially if they identify with some religious system there's a good chance they have abandoned certain elements. And so we should ask questions, find out what they specifically believe, engage with that. So as syncretism goes on today, it went on at the time of Paul, and Paul combats this by exalting the true Jesus. The correction to bad thinking is a right understanding of Jesus, who he is, what he has done in the gospel, and how he is changing us through the gospel. We worship Christ, we trust Christ, and we live lives dramatically changed by Christ that are to look like Christ. And all that is only possible because of the grace of God. In fact, look, look how he ends his greetings. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Father, grace. You know, remember that uh, God's undeserved kindness towards us in Jesus, that, that kindness that saves us from our sins because Jesus took our place on the cross. Remember that kindness and in fact the kindness that you still walk into this day. But don't just remember the kindness, remember the peace that comes from God, that whole well-being that comes from God's work in your life. God's work through the gospel. Remember that. Walk in that. Those are gifts from God. Paul desires 
for the saints to delight in the goodness of God. To remember his goodness towards them and delight in that. Now, the main point of Thanksgiving actually doesn't pick up until verse 3. But as we, we think about these greetings from Paul, this greeting from him, we're reminded that we ought to be thankful for the grace of God in our life and, and be thankful for God's word. How, how great it is that we get to have this letter from Paul, the word of God written through Paul to help us think clearly and rightly about Christ's glory. Now, we're thankful for God's word, and Paul overflows into the second reason, really, we could say, why we, uh, we could be thankful, the second reason, that is for God himself. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. When we pray for you. This is really the main point of the whole section. We give thanks to God. We give thanks. And this isn't a one-time thanks. The grammar here shows this is an ongoing thankfulness, an ongoing expression of gladness for the saints, gratitude. I'm so thankful for you. He echoes it in other letters in Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Thankfulness, thanksgiving was to be a natural part of the Christian life. It's a normal part of our life. Ephesians 5.20 calls us to saying, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we ought to walk about our days. We are giving thanks to God. It is to be a natural response from someone who understands the depth of their sinfulness and yet at the same time, the grace of God. How can I not be thankful? I'm a wretched sinner who deserves the wrath of God. I don't deserve or earn anything good, and yet look what God has done for me through Jesus. Oh, thank you, God. Anything apart from hell, that is your grace. Thank you. Thank you. Makes me wonder if we're, if we're not thankful people, a good antidote, a good prescription for us would be to meditate on the depth of our sinfulness and the grace of God. To, to dwell on that, to meditate on it until our hearts are gripped to see, look how kind God has been to me. He expresses this thanksgiving in constant prayer, always in prayer for you. Yes, this, this thanksgiving is overflows outward, right, to the saints, because he's writing this. This would be an encouragement to them. But what is the primary direction that the thanksgiving goes? It goes upward. It goes Godward. That is the direction of his thanks. It is giving God the credit. God the Father gets the credit. He's the only one worthy of such praise and such thanks. I mean, think about what James 1.17 says. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good thing we deserve, 
we don't deserve is coming from God. So the credit goes back up to him. The father gets the credit. And yet we see the, he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The father delivers us out of that domain of darkness and plants us into the kingdom of his son, Jesus. The goodness that the father shows to us is directly connected to his work through the Son in the Gospel. So the work of the Son is connected to the work of the Father. The work of the Father is connected to the work of the Son. Their work, the triune God's work, draws us to praise the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, not just some distant Lord, our Lord, the one who we submit to and yet we can be reconciled to the one who is near to us, our master. Paul acknowledges the relationship with Jesus in a manner that rightfully recognizes Jesus is the preeminent one, the supreme one. He is our master, Jesus Christ. He is the the one who is supremely master over all by his nature and by his work and the goodness of his work through the gospel is that we get a reconciled relationship with that master, the one who created us, who created the universe. And that is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. And yet in that he guarantees us eternal life as we trust in him. We get him Do we delight in God? Do we really delight in Him? Not just Sunday mornings, but Tuesday afternoons, Thursday mornings, every part of our week. Are we thankful to God for who He is and what He has done? Only God can rescue sinners and then change them to make them like Jesus. And while we don't deserve a single ounce of that goodness, let's be a thankful people because God has shown that wondrous mercy to us. And he gets all the credit. So that's a second reason for thanksgiving is God himself. Now look at verse four. Our third reason is God's work in you. Verse four. So he said, I, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So the reason Paul gives thanks to God is because of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and their love for one another, all of which is a work of God. They, they heard and they believed the gospel, and Paul was exceedingly glad that they embraced it, that they received it. He's full of joy and thanksgiving that they heard the good news of Christ and they repented and trusted in him because that is the only way someone can be saved. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. We can't earn our own forgiveness or a blessed position before the Lord. We must recognize that we have no contribution to the gospel except the sin that needs washed away. And in the goodness and power of God, Jesus' work at the cross is sufficient to wash away 
that sin. And so we ought to trust in him. If you're not trusting in him today, you must trust in him to be saved. But it wasn't that they just believed the gospel that brought joy to Paul. Paul was thankful that there was evidence of their faith, right? He says, and of your love that you have for all the saints, their love for one another. This was the evidence of God's work in them. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Children of God love the children of God. God's family loves God and each other. And that love originates in God's own love for us. You might remember 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in the gospel, the father expresses his love for his people by sending the son to die for their sins and then give them eternal life. And that comes to those who repent and trust in Christ. And now, in Christ, we seek to live in a way that represents him well. Our love for one another demonstrates that we actually know God. And and this, Paul's saying this, emphasizes the power of the gospel. Remember that whole claim, well, the gospel's insufficient to actually, you know, give you what you need. But even here, Paul is showing the sufficiency, the power of the gospel. The Colossians didn't need a secret, hidden knowledge or to practice any superstitious rituals or traditions to experience, in order to experience the transforming power of God. They already bore the evidence that the gospel was at work within them because they loved the saints. Do we love the saints? Are we, are we bearing the fruit, the evidence that God is at work in us because we love one another? Paul is saying, I am thankful because you are trusting Christ and he is working in you. And he has changed you through that glorious gospel. I am so thankful for you. I am so thankful for you, Eastridge. Because you love one another. Because you love me. Let us praise and thank God for his work through the gospel in saving us and in saving others. Maybe we could take time daily to even say, thank you, God, for your child, so-and-so, whoever it is. Thank you that they are trusting in you and I see them living in a manner worthy of the call of the gospel. We should express thanks to God for his word. We should express thanks to God for who he is and for what he has done in our lives. But then also we should give thanks to him because of the powerful work of the gospel everywhere else. Not just here. Across the world. Look at verses 5 and 6. He said, uh, leading up to this, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. 
Our fourth reason is because of God's work in the world. God's work in the world. Paul, Paul shifts here in these verses, verses 5 and 6, to really dwell on the activity and the power of the gospel in the world. It's another reason we ought to give thanks to God. The, the basis here of their, their faith in Christ and love for one another is verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, this isn't just a subjective hope that he's talking about, you know, like your wishful thinking or the demeanor you might have. Instead, he is objectively using this as a description of the content of our hope. What is the content of our hope? Hope in itself, it is the inheritance that we get through the gospel. The salvation that comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 1, 3-4, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance kept in heaven for you you. It is laid up. It is reserved in heaven for the saints. Showing, one, God's sovereign work in this. He's the one who brings the salvation and secures the salvation. He's the one where it is laid up. He's the one that protects it, who guarantees it. Yet it also not only is sovereign work, it implies the security of his work. The security of our inheritance. Be assured, beloved, that no one can steal this hope laid up for you. Even on our off days, we don't lose this blessed treasure. No one can rob you of your salvation and the inheritance in Christ that awaits you. God bought it and God brought it about. And, and, and he is the supreme one who did this work. He is the supreme one of the universe who guards it in heaven. No one can rob God of this. And so we can be thankful to God for the security of our salvation. It is laid up or reserved in heaven for you by who? God Almighty. It was so powerful that he spoke the universe into existence. This hope laid up for you in heaven, and of this hope, of this, that, that's the hope laid up for them, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. The gospel is the word of truth, or as he would say later, it is the grace of God in truth. The gospel is the truth. We, we live in a world of lies run by the devil of lies, and yet it is invaded by the gospel of truth. Specifically, it is invaded in the person of Jesus Christ, who calls himself the truth in John 14. In a world where, where some, many, actually deny that truth exists, and others think that truth is just relative, the Bible is very clear that there is only one message of truth. There is only one Lord of truth, 
and that Lord is Jesus Christ. And we must turn and avoid the squishy uncertainty of this world and embrace Christ and His Word. He is the truth. His Word is the truth that sets us free. Not keeps us in bondage to this world of lies. And this message is invading the world. Not just Eastridge, not just Kent, the world. It came to them, as he says, and it's coming to the whole world, right? Isn't that the church's mission, to go and make disciples of all nations? Okay? Not just right here, but all the nations. There is to be an outward flow that brings people to Christ. And as the gospel goes out, Paul acknowledges that it is bearing fruit and increasing. It is an ongoing bearing fruit, an ongoing increasing. It wasn't just one and done. It keeps moving. It keeps bringing about an inner life change that produces character that is in line with what God demands. The gospel bears evidence of its presence. The gospel bears evidence of its work. It either, if people reject it, it hardens hearts. Or if people repent and believe, it produces godly characteristics. And it's increasing. It is spreading, growing, Interestingly, the word here for increasing is what we say is, in, is passive. It is being taken. It is being brought by someone else, or you could say sent by God. It's going out by the work of God, and it is increasing. God is causing the gospel to increase, not just here, but across the world, signifying that this message wasn't just for the Jews, wasn't just for a certain people at a certain locale. It is now for everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, from Middle Eastern Jews to European Gentiles. The gospel is the same. It does not change based off of time or location. But it is bearing fruit everywhere, and yet it is also bearing fruit, as you know, among you, he says. The Colossians were displaying that fruit. Be, be encouraged that God is changing you and making you more like Jesus, and He is doing that elsewhere. You've probably been, you've ever been on a mission trip or, or somewhere else, and you interact with other believers in Christ, and like right away you, you hit off, and you're like, it feels like we've known each other forever. It's just like this special connection. Why is that? It is because of the work of God through the gospel to save people everywhere, and to unite us ultimately in one family. So yes, it ought to feel that way because you are brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where you are. Listen, Paul would say to Colossians, you're not missing out on some special knowledge or some additional tradition or experience. No, not at all. It is by God's work and his, through, by His Spirit through the gospel in your life that brings forth this amazing fruit. So, so keep it up. Press on all the more. Keep going. Keep going, Eastridge. We see the fruit and it is good and the good change. Well, let's keep going. Don't stop there. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of the almighty creator, the preeminent master of the universe. No one is stronger than him. And that means the gospel truly can't be stopped by any boundaries from personal boundaries to cultural boundaries to national boundary lines. It cannot be stopped. And so let us... Let us actively and intentionally thank God that people are being saved. Lives are being changed. Churches are being built up all across the world. And one day, we're all going to get to worship around the throne together. That'll be a great day. Not only that, let us actively and intentionally thank God because it is the power of God unto salvation that brings fruit from our lives and in the lives of others. Maybe a good application for us would it be this week to intentionally encourage someone else and, and tell them of the good fruit you see in their lives. Say, brother so-and-so, I just want to let you know, I am so encouraged by the kindness that you display around people. Whether they're easy to be around or difficult. Or, sister, I just want to, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness to the Lord and how you serve your family. Whatever it might be. We all like to hear stuff, don't we? We like to be encouraged by that. It could be good that that was a normal part of our week. You know, a good place to start with that is in our homes. We tell each other in our homes. I'm so thankful to see, I'm seeing God work in your life, and I'm seeing this fruit. If you're not sure what fruits, go to Colossians 3 and look at all the put-ons. Go to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I just... Fathers, tell your sons, you know, you, I'm just so encouraged that you showed great self-control when your brother or sister ripped that bone out of your hand and you didn't smack them back. Thank you. You know that honors Christ? It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't need a special law degree or anything to do it. We can all do that. Our reasons for thanksgiving to God, they just keep growing. We praise Him for His Word. We thank Him for who He is, that He saves us, and He works in us, that He is at work in the whole world through the gospel. But we can also praise Him for the faithful messengers that He sends out into the harvest. Look at verses 7 and 8. Just as you, you have learned it, that's the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So as the gospel goes out and God works in the world, he sends his servants to bring that good news. To even actually bring the good news of how the good news is working in other places. It's an encouragement, and we should thank God for such messengers. Thank God that he's using them to build up his church. Paul says, you learned this from Epaphras. They heard the gospel from him and they received it. They believed it as what it is, the truth. And they truly embraced it and God was changing their lives. And Epaphras was that faithful messenger to them. 
Paul would go on to describe Epaphras in Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13, saying, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. He was a faithful servant, one who worked hard. Why? Because he was a servant of Christ and he loved Christ's people. He was beloved, meaning he was loved by Paul and others. He was faithful, meaning he was reliable and trustworthy, and he was a servant. He submitted to the preeminent Christ, the lordship of Christ, recognizing that he's just an instrument in the hand of the Lord. Whatever the Lord wants, that's what I'll do. Wherever he sends me, that's where I'll go. Well, Epaphras is the one who told them, may know to them the saint's love in the Spirit, the love that the Holy Spirit had produced in them. It was a love for Christ's people. Love for Christ's people is faith in Christ on display. And that comes back full circle, right? He thanked God for their faith in Christ and the love for the saints, and we see Paul had been made known of that love that was brought about by the Spirit. It was evidence that God is working among them. And Epaphras was intentional to tell Paul about that. Would people tell others that we are people, we here at Eastridge are people who trust in Christ and love the saints well? Would that be the testimony of someone who was among us and then went somewhere else. And let me tell you about this church in Kent, Washington. They love Christ and trust in Christ, yet they love each other really well. Epaphras here is an example of a messenger that God used mightily. He was a gift to the church. And when we see each other serving in the church, when we think of our missionaries taking the gospel to the nations, we ought to give thanks to God for them. Actively, intentionally giving thanks. When we see our brothers and sisters, when we see each other serving here at Eastridge, we give thanks. Thank you, God, to see all the adults who are here on a Wednesday night to minister the truth to these precious children. That's a gift from God that we have that. We don't need to reserve Thanksgiving just for the holiday Thanksgiving. We don't have to wait until November. The Apostle Paul helps us see that there is there's much to be thankful for, and it should be an expression of a heart of worship that flows from us naturally all the time because we know who God is and what he has done. If we're having trouble during the week, Knowing what to be thankful for, we'll go back here. We can remember, we can be thankful for God's word, for God himself, for God's work in us through the gospel, for God's work in the world through the gospel, and be thankful for God's messengers, God's servants. The gospel leads us to God-centered thanksgiving. 
May we be a people that are quick to say, thank you, God, for my brother and sister in Christ. Thank you, God, for them. Let's pray. Father, in in line with what Paul has given us an example here, Father, I thank you so much for your word, that it instructs us, it convicts us, it encourages us, it helps us, that it works mightily within us by the power of your spirit to make us more like Jesus. I thank you so much for who you are, that you are our great God and Savior, that you are the mighty king of the universe, the master of your people, the master of all. I thank you, God, for the love that you have shown us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we, those sinners, are reconciled to you and given eternal peace with you because of Jesus. I thank you, Father, that that message of the good news is going out to the ends of the world. I thank you for our missionaries, not just our missionaries, the missionaries that other churches support too, missionaries everywhere that are being faithful to labor in some places that are harder than we could ever imagine and are facing challenges beyond what we've ever experienced. I thank you, God, that for taking that good news through them. And I, Father, I thank you that the gospel is bearing fruit all across the world, beginning here, beginning in my own life. I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters in Christ here in Eastridge who love each other and who love me. Father, help us to be thankful people. And may it become just the natural overflow of our heart because we love you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.